Morning, Veritas. Glad to see you today. I'm glad you're back. We are plowing through the book of James, and we've just kind of had one uh, one tough text after another. And guess what? I got another tough text for us to dive into today. So I hope I hope really your heart is open. I hope your eyes are open and ears are open to hear um, what God's word says to us. It is, as Richard said the inspired Word of God. It's a letter to us. It's both encouraging and a challenge to us as Christians to walk in it. And as James is writing to people of the dispersion, they've been dispersed because of persecution. And I don't know that James necessarily believes that his whole entire audience believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but, but they think they do. And so, same here with us. There's a challenge to those of us who believe, but not all of us in this room, though we might say it, we're, we're not, we're not in, in Christ. And so I hope and pray that that is revealed more and more to us. And then secondly, that the grace of God is also revealed through his text. So that's where I want us to wrestle with and what I want us to wrestle with. And Jordan opened us up last week just talking about the significance of sin and the significance of being what, uh, what a friend of the world looks like. It looks like hatred of God. And James talks about these things and ties them to adultery. And again, ties them to hatred of God. This idea that you can be in covenant with something or someone and just dabble over here on the side is absolutely appalling and offensive when we think about it in the scope of marriage. But many of us, when we think about it with the relationship to God, it just doesn't phase us that much. I mean, it's really like if my spouse were to do something like that to me, I'd kill him. But me... Cheating on God, in a sense. I mean, is it really that bad? But it's but it's it's really not good. And so Jordan covered that with us. And then today, I feel like we kind of get to the root of it even more. We talked about idolatry and adultery. And then today, we're going to kind of lean in a little bit more and talk about one more thing. But I wanted to open a little bit with a story. Uh, when I was young, my my family raised cattle. We were in the Red River Valley in northern Minnesota, and we raised cattle. And in uh, we always had 16 polled Herefords, and then we got up to 24, and then my dad kind of lost our land, and we started just specifically focusing on cattle in North Dakota. We lived right along the Red River, so North Dakota was like half a mile away or a mile away, and so I talk about the two states interchangeably. I lived in Minnesota. We did a lot of work in North Dakota, but um, we had a lot of cows, thousands, and inevitably, we would have to move pens with cattle and shift them around. And it was always great, right? I, I enjoyed working with cattle. And um, it was always fun to, like, set up to change the pens or load semis or whatever we were doing that day. But inevitably, there was always that one cow or that one heifer, okay? You would get... Um, all the cattle over, there'd be like 50, and they'd be like, oh, the gate's open, let's just go there, and they would all go. But the 51st would be like, no, that can't be open, no, I'm going to jump, I'm going to jump, and we'd all be like, no, and then she would just jump, and you'd be like, duh, wrecking the wire, tearing down the fence. I've seen a grown 2,000-pound animal try to jump a six-foot-high metal gate. And the gate looks like this after the attempt. I don't see how people think they can jump over the moon. But anyways, um, they'd always jump, though the gate was wide open. And perhaps maybe you, you don't have cattle or didn't have cattle, but perhaps you've been around children 
or perhaps you, you have a child, and you're that parent who said to them, listen, you need to eat three more spoonfuls. And then you spent the next three hours of your life sitting there, witnessing a melodrama that seemed to last for an eternity. And you're like, just come on, eat the spoonful. We don't have to sit here. And please, if you're a parent in this room, please make them eat the spoonful. Please be committed to what you say for even their own sake. But perhaps you've been a part of that melodrama and then they finally muster up the courage or whatever it would be to swallow that last spoonful. And you're like, oh, thank God, it's over. But the question is, because we're not all children in this room, and perhaps you are and need to consider this, but what areas are you holding out on? What areas, what food won't you eat? And I mean, that seems foolish, so let's, let's make it even closer. Like, what thing is God asking you to do that you will not do, that you will not cave to? What areas of your life will you not hand over to God? Because while it's funny and amusing to think of those painful times with our children or perhaps at work or at a job or with cattle, it's funny. But, but this takes it up a notch in our lives because there are areas that we have acted and learned um, just like when we were two, when we refuse to take the, the spoonfuls of food. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James. I hope you have a Bible with you. And I want to start reading. And I want to start reading from the text that Jordan covered last week because it merges, imagine that, well with the text that we're going to cover today. So we are in James chapter 4, and we are going to start in verse 4. James has just talked about what causes quarrels and fights among us. We want stuff, and we're not getting it, and you're in my way. Okay? We want stuff, our heart wants stuff, and you're in my way. And so then we go about it all wrong. We either don't ask God about it or we just muscle our way into taking it. Like we want something that God hasn't given or, and we fight about it. Okay, like that's the reality of our life. And this is my prayer for us as a church. Realizing that, I want us to realize that everything we deal with is spiritual. Right? Now, I'm not talking about weird, mystical spiritism. I'm not saying we should worship our chair. But I'm saying you might have a legitimate argument with your spouse over who picks up the kids on Tuesday. You might have a disagreement of who picks up the kids on Tuesday or what you're going to do next weekend. But, and that's not necessarily the concern. You have a disagreement. I'm going to go stand over here. Um, you have a disagreement, a genuine disagreement at the heart of it, like, how is your attitude? That's the part that's legitimately concerning, okay? And so James doesn't pad this blow at all. He doesn't soften the tip of the spear. He calls us adulterous people. Let's go to verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is for no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? For he gives more grace. Therefore it said God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we recognize that in our life, in our trouble, in our daily trials, we are either going to lean into godliness or we're going to desire to be friends with the world. Which again, like 
taken back in this context, you look at the danger of what friendship with the world entails. We're going to need some help. And God gives grace abundantly. Grace is unmerited favor. It's not something that you can work for. It's just God overflowing onto us, giving us the grace to handle what happens today. Giving us the grace to handle what happened yesterday. Giving us the grace to handle what has made our lives happen. And we're going to need a lot to battle day to day until the day we die. And that's not to say give us an excuse, right? Because we're going to battle until the day we die doesn't mean we get to fail. It's that we get to fight. God gives us the strength. God gives us the energy to fight this battle that wages a war within us. There's this reality that James is warning warning us about. That God opposes the proud. And I want to talk a little bit about pride. Okay, when we're all four years old or seven, you know, you might have stood on top of the playground thing and said, my dad's the best. Woo! Me. And now you're older, so you're like, my pickup's the best. My football team's the best, right? But let's face it, we're not all just out there being like, I'm better than you. I am better than you, better than you. I'm better. I'm better, okay? Like, no, nobody says that. Okay, nobody says that. Or if you do, I rebuke you, okay? But we're more subtle with what is proud. We more subtly just do things on our own without caring about those. And James is quoting here from Proverbs. If you turn with me there, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, which states this, Toward the scorners, he, God, is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. And you see this contrast that he's building between humility and those who are hard-hearted. So what is humility? Humility is actually a characteristic of our very God. Humility is a characteristic of our creator. Okay, the word itself means to be brought low or to make low. And perhaps some of you have heard C.S. Lewis's quote that said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking about yourself less. I think the word humility, we get confused and we're just like, oh, I am nothing. Oh, don't hope in me. Sure, those are true, but it's also not good to just focus on how much you shouldn't think much of you. Okay, it's setting your eyes not on yourself and your ways and your ideas, but setting your eyes on something greater, something different, something that puts us in our place. And the greatest thing that puts us in our place is our very creator. And what I think James is driving at time and time again in these chapters is that God doesn't tolerate his creation doing whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do it, the way they want to do it. And God doesn't tolerate his creation telling him how it should be done. He is, after all, Lord. His ways are good. His ways are perfect. I'm not suggesting that we always understand what he's up to. But his way, I can assure you, is 100% better than my way. And it's this challenge that God is warning us about through this author, James, saying, you can't do it your way. Humble yourself to God. Matt Chandler tells a story in one of his messages about a time they were driving to their, his parents and his child was sitting in the back seat. And at some point they had to take a detour and they got lost And his two-year-old boldly spoke from their car seat in the back. Do you even know where you're going? 
Where are you going, Dad? And in reality, we do that to God all the time. God, you are doing this wrong. God, you have given me the worst spouse on the planet. I will treat them poorly, and I will fight with them until you fix your problem. No, we don't say it quite like that. But our attitudes and our actions are drenched in that attitude. God, this job you've given me, God, this car, it is weak. It doesn't start like you have failed me. I need their car. I covet their car. God, I covet their house. God, I covet their children. God, I covet their lifestyle because you, you failed me. And we're the two-year-old in the back seat saying, I'm pretty sure you messed up. You let me drive. And nobody in their right mind would hand their car over to the two-year-old. And God presses forward towards the prize. We see here in James, there's favor and grace for those who walk in humility. And there's direct opposition from your creator to those who walk in pride. So what does this look like? Let's read on. Verses 7 and 8. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So I'm going to start something that we don't often do here at Veritas Church, okay? I'm going to give you six points for how to respond in humility, okay? So point one, talking about humility, humility looks like submitting to God. Humility looks like submitting to God. That seems so basic, but it's so hard for us to do. God has written to you a letter, a letter that many of you don't read. You know what Richard was talking about here, these Bible reading plans, these things like that. Like this, this is a letter to you from God. If you're ever wondering what God thinks, how he works, his character, it's here. And he wrote it to be followed. He wrote it to be followed. If you opened Christmas gifts a couple months ago and you got a toy or your child got a toy and you just throw the directions away, you're in for a very long build. Painful. And you have a direction manual. Your relationship has a direction manual. The decision-making process you go through, there's a direction manual. It guides your heart through the darkness, through the difficulty. As you disagree, as you have to make choices, right? But humility looks like submitting to God, doing at the heart level what God desires for you to do. Submitting to his will, even over my will. I think a great, the greatest example of that is in the garden before the cross. Jesus Christ prays, not my will, but yours be done. Father, my marriage is struggling. You're sanctifying me. In fact, you say for me to count it all joy when I face trials of many kinds. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Help me trust you more. Help me walk in faith more. God, my job, it's terrible. Not my will, but yours be done. May I work faithfully as unto you and not unto men. Not my will, but yours be done. Submit to God. Humility looks like submitting to God. Secondly, humility resists the devil. 
And we don't talk about this a ton in our churches. I am guilty. When it comes to talking about the devil, I go away from the devil. Okay? But there's this reoccurring theme throughout the scriptures that he is an active being. And his minions run about creating a mess. His minions run about using what's already in my heart, my hardness of heart, and can significantly cause issues. But I'm not saying to you that we need to go and cast anything out. I'm not saying to you that we need to go and cast anything out. I'm saying that if one should interfere or get involved, it will significantly heighten the process. But there is a reality that before we were in Christ, we were under his dominion. If you turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Some of you might know this text. It says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of the disobedient. So there's this reality, and Paul writes elsewhere, I think of Corinthians, where he talks about putting off the old man. In Colossians he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And there's this reality, there's this tension that I'm fighting to put off the old man, which was under the leadership of Satan, the devil. Now if you look at Luke chapter 6, and you look at Mark chapter 7, you're going to find that out of your heart, your mouth speaks. You're going to find that sexual immorality and a whole horde of other sins, and I'm sure it's not an exhaustive list, come also from your heart. So I want to acknowledge that the demons work, the devil works, but there's this issue of hardness of heart and the old self. And we need to resist the devil. We need to resist our old master. And like, take it up a notch. Perhaps you haven't thought about your sin as being associated with the other team. And you ought to. Sin is absolutely wicked. Whenever you're doing something and Satan is like, yes, that's bad. That's the reality of our sin. If you go with me to Galatians chapter 5, Paul is writing to the church in Galatia. And he says to them, he shares with them the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of the flesh. It says this, this is Galatians 5 verse 19. Now the works of the flesh, of the old self, of the human, they're, they're evident well, what are they, Paul? Well, they're sexual immorality. That's a big word. It covers adultery. It covers pornography. It covers sex outside of marriage. Things that shouldn't even be named among the saints. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery. Enmity. Strife. Jealousy. Fits of anger. Rivalries. Dissensions. Divisions. Envy. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And then Paul warns us so sternly. I warn you. As I warned you before that those who practice such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so I think when we come to a list like this, us good religious people might have an excuse be like... At least in non-insexual immorality, which is probably a joke. Let's call it what it is. Okay? Or you might say, like, I don't even know what sorcery is. 
It's probably more pronounced in your life or around you than you'd ever imagine, but I'm not going to dive into that. But let's talk about fits of anger. Anyone have fits of anger? Towards a child? Towards your spouse? Like, this is fruit of the flesh. This is demonic. This is the other team. It's worth, like, checking your heart. You might have a legitimate disagreement. Yes, you've got points over here. They have points over here. They're in collision. But how's your heart when you're talking about your points? Where's your heart at in the disagreements? Divisions, envy, so on. Like, see your actions as fruit. The seed that you plant in the ground this spring, millions of acres of corn are going to be planted. And I can assure you that no acre of corn will grow up as cotton. I mean, that just seems, duh. I planted 50 acres of corn and all I see is cotton. What even is cotton? But when you, the Holy Spirit moves into your heart, And certainly, I'm not talking about perfection, but nothing changes. And the one fruit over here is just bitterness. And the other fruit over here is envy. And I'm just jealous. And all I want is my neighbor's life. That's that's not that the Spirit bore those fruits. That's that the Spirit isn't there. The corn wasn't planted. You planted a cotton seed. I don't know how you would make that mistake, but let's call it what it is, like in our own lives. If the Spirit is planted, there's going to be fruit of the Spirit. Perhaps it's slow, yes. There's abundant grace. God gives grace for that, but it's going to be transformative. It's going to change our lives. But we need to see our actions as fruit, fruit of a heart that's following God. Or fruit of a hard heart that's earthly and following your old leader. Resist the devil, humbling yourself before God. And the devil, he'll flee. It's like there's no battle there. It's like, hey, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Don't view the devil as God and the devil and they're just fighting. Who's going to win? Like, no, God wins. The devil is this, God is this. There's no comparison of the two. You resist the devil with God, he runs. It's that simple. It is, articulating it, that simple. He has no chance. He loses every war he fights. Point three, humility draws near to God. Humility moves into God. Humility wants a relationship with God. Humility knows I need a savior. I can't do this on my own. I need God. It's not this quick little like, hey God, let's uh, do lunch once every other month. You can check up on me and see how I'm doing. Like, no, I want to live with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to make decisions based off of you. I want to be engaged with you. And what does it say there? That God moves back toward you. Lean into God. God leans into you. We submit to all his ways. And let's face it, folks, at the heart of Christianity isn't living a moral life. I think of so oftentimes as a youth pastor, I hear from people and are like, I just want my kid to be normal, and I just don't want them to kill anybody. I don't want them on drugs. I want them to be sexually pure. And, like, that's not the end. Like, do you want your kids to want God? 
Let's start with sexual purity by wanting God. Let's start with not wanting a desire to drink hordes of alcohol because they have so much of God. God has been my king and he's my peace. I don't even need to numb my pain. I can just go to my savior. Do we want our kids to shut up and cooperate or do we want them to want God? Do you want your spouse to shut their mouths and cooperate or do you want them to want God? At the heart of Christianity is wanting God and that will deeply impact your morality. Point four, humility cleanses your hands. In this situation, the term of cleansing your hands is dealing with the means that cause you to sin. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses, or Matthew chapter 5, he says, like, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to go to heaven wounded than it is for you to go with your hands and your eyes and be whole. Like, this is the seriousness of this adultery to God. Stop! What will it take for us to stop sinning? What will it take for us? What means in our life do we need to evaluate and say, I can't do that anymore? What is the thing? What is the means by which we sin? Don't be okay with sin. Take steps to stop sinning. And I feel like that feels heartless, so let's go to the heart. Number five is this. Humility purifies our hearts. Humility purifies the heart. It isn't only to eliminate the means with which we sin. It is addressing the sin at the deepest level. We don't want God. We don't want God. Last session in the class gospel pathway that I am very involved in. uh, Week one, small group session one. Someone came in and said, love God, love God. God is great. God is awesome. I just have a trouble with control. And I'm like, so you have trouble with faith. No, I don't have any trouble with faith. My faith is really awesome. I just have trouble with control. So you have, you have trouble with faith. You have trouble with trusting God. Well, no, I don't. And I'm like, no, you do. Like these actions that we act upon are based off of weaknesses that we perceive God has. God, you're not going to control. I'll control this. I will set up my retirement. I will plan my kids' lives. I will tell my spouse what they need to do every minute of every day. I've got this because you can't do it, apparently. It's a God issue. It's a trust issue. And the reality is many of us, we, we don't fight this issue that we have that really we don't want God. Don't butt into my life. Don't tell me what I can do. I, I can figure this out. And, and we don't say it like that. No, no, nobody in this room says, I, I don't want God. You're church people. But we sure want other things a lot. We sure want other things. And we will do everything to do other things rather than read our word. Rather than attend church. Connection group? Are you kidding me? I'm not telling nobody nothing. We want other things. And the essence of what James is saying here is that we need to address our mind, our emotions, our conscience, our feelings, and we need to rewire our mind and our hearts to set on God first, to set on our creator first. We can't be double-minded. James talks about double-mindedness. If you go to James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, he says this, But let him ask in faith, right? Faith is believing in what we cannot see. With no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. 
For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, I, I love the land. I love the land. And I was from... What am I saying? I, I was, you know, like, I don't go on the water very often, okay? That's what I'm trying to say. And uh, I remember a time going fishing with my uncle on Lake Malax. I was very little. And Lake Malax has some of those things called waves. And the boat proceeded to go up and down, up and down, up and down. And my face went from semi-normal colored to green, okay? Uh, it was difficult. It made me ill, very ill, for like the rest of the whole entire day. And there's nothing worse than being a land-loving person who's stuck out on a boat for hours because my uncle had to fish. But it was terrifying, right? And you see this picture here of somebody who's doubting. They're like, they're on the sea. Now, I don't want to insult you by saying, like, stop doubting God. I'm saying we all doubt God. I love to talk about God's sovereignty. I love to talk about his omniscience and his love. But a lot of the times I doubt that he loves me. It's not a doubt issue. It's a God issue. Matthew has a God issue. And when I'm paralyzed with fear about the economy or about what the, what's happening next, it's not an economy issue or what's happening next issue. It's a God issue because God already sees what's coming. And he's already prepared a way. And some of it might involve me being sanctified, which I really hate. He has a plan. He's working some out and he's good and he loves me. Doubting is the root of so many kinds of sin. Doubting God is one thing, but then we doubt God and then do it our own way. And that, that is pride. God, you're failing? I'll fix it. I got you. I'll cover for you this time. You know, maybe you'll give me something good. I cover your tail. You cover mine. We're friends. That's wicked. That's sinful. And this plays out in getting angry. God, you're not fixing the problem, so I'll tell him to get in line. I'll tell them. Or I'll be bitter. God, you put me with that person 20 years ago. They did that to me. Are you kidding me right now? If you're not going to judge them, I'll judge them. I'll judge them till they die. Shows up and living in constant fear. God, you're not following through. I'll take care of you. Sex outside of marriage. God, you're not providing this essential physical need I have. I'll find it my way. Drinking excessively. God, you don't take my burdens. I still feel the weight. They're crushing me. I need a few hours of numbness. I'll I'll take care of it. Seeking revenge. God, you're not going to give vengeance. I'll give vengeance. I'm good at it. He's full from a heart that's broken. A heart that's not trusting God and a heart that will do it my own way. It's a sin issue. It's fruit of rottenness. It's demonic. And this is where we need to realize that pride is not just external arrogance. It's not just external arrogance. We've all worked with the guy who won't listen to the directions, right? Hey, they're supposed to do it this way. Oh, I've got a better way of doing it. I'll just do it. Let's do it quick. And that's how we act towards God. I've got directions. Wait on the Lord. Well, I'm tired of waiting. I'm just going to do it. Wait, wait, wait for the Lord. Don't, don't do it your own way. We need to be constantly watching for how pride creeps in 
And again, it doesn't look like my team's better than yours or my pickup's better than yours or my kids are better than yours. It doesn't, nobody boasts like that. It's more subtle than that. And it's offensive to a holy God. Right? So what do we do about this if we've, we've discovered these things? James chapter 9. Uh, James chapter 4, I'm sorry. Uh, verses 9 and 10 says this. Be, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to, to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Number six, humble people mourn over their sin. I wish, I wish I took sin more seriously. There's a lot of sin that this guy cooperates with that I keep hidden from you guys and I don't do nothing about. There's a lot in the church that we don't, we don't ever grieve over. We're just like, yeah, I told a lie on Thursday. Uh, you know, with time it'll pass. It'll be over with. Or I offended my spouse. I'm not going to ever say I'm sorry to her. Uh, I'm just going to move past this week and a half of silence, and then it'll be great. We'll be back to normal in no time. Sin is offensive. Sin is gross. Sin is hateful. Sin doesn't have to be murder or a punching someone in the face. It can be the words that flow out of our mouth. Like, when was the last time we were grieved by our sin? Sin ought to wreck us. It should make us sad. Now, obviously, James is not opposed to happiness. He says, count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. (laughs) But he talks about joy. There's this picture of this overriding sense of hope that we have as Christians because of the work of Jesus Christ. But there's this reality that sin should wreck us. And it shouldn't wreck us to the point where we lay in bed for eight months. But there's a point where we should grieve our sin, grieve our careless words, grieve our anger, grieve our bitterness. Grieve the distractions that are so wicked that we so quickly go to. It's not okay to sin. It's not okay to sin against the holy God when you consider what God has done for us. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Blessed are the poor in spirit. This has nothing to do with financial poverty. But these are the people that take it seriously. Now, I would say, I grew up in an environment that would say, like, we need to be more sober-minded. Like, we need to be serious. Like, we couldn't, like, listen to a comedian because we needed to be sober and serious. But we also have something that is so joyful that we should be exuberant at times because of what Christ has done liberating us from this. But let's not ignore that. Let's not live in denial and forget that sin is hateful and serious. We should be poor in spirit. For theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a promise. And then the next verse, verse 4, it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I don't have time to preach this text, but I think if you look at the context of what Jesus is saying on the Sermon of the Mount, he's saying, Blessed are those who mourn over sin. Blessed are those who hate sin. Blessed are those who are ruined. In fact, blessed is makirios. It's the word for happy. Happy are those who are ruined by their sin. 
They hate it. Why do I do that? I do not understand what I do for what I hate to do. I keep doing. God, help me. I think as Americans, we hate to grieve. And I'm not saying that all of us need to cry. Maybe you do. Maybe that's your way of mourning. Maybe you're not a crier. But sometimes we need to sit in this. I would argue that when James talks about laughter, he's like, let's stop denying this. Let's stop denying that we've committed some bad stuff. When you look at you and God, there's a loser. And it's brokenness and devastating. Let's grieve over that. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Let your denial and your busyness be halted. I talk to so many people who are like, I need to stay busy. I need to stay busy. I just can't stop and think. I can't think. I don't want to think. I don't want to think about the decisions I've made. I don't want to think about the people I've hurt. I don't want to think about who I owe forgiveness to. I just need to stay busy. Busy, 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 busy. I don't want to address conflict. I just need to go, 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 go. And in that way, the devil has totally deceived you both from actually addressing your sin and finding the freedom that you can find in Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ doesn't offer us freedom for this, and I'm not just speaking for the setup team, let's sleep in on Sunday. Let's take these Bibles. Let's get rid of them. We've got other things we could be doing. But the gospel addresses these things, and there's hope for these things. But for now, let your laughter be turned to mourning. Let your denial and your busyness be halted so you can mourn for the sins that have been committed. Church, we need to be humble. We need to humble ourselves by giving up on doing things our own way and confess that we've done things our own way. Our selfish ambition, our boasting, our idolatry, our adultery, our quarreling, our friendship with the world is sinful. It is offensive to your holy God. And God's way is good and right. And our way is evil. Everything that I can muster up in my heart and in my head has a defense of this guy. And always ends up with me on the throne. And God says, I'm on the throne. You're created. Trust me. Trust me. There's a statement of hope, though, in verse 10. And I don't want us to forget about this. Okay, verse 10, let's read it again. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humility gets us God. And I want to just focus on the gift, right? I want to focus on the giver. The giver gets us the gift, but humility gets us God. The journey of humility is hard, but the reward is awesome. We get both exaltation and God. That is exaltation. We, when you look at your life, if you've considered the book of James, you're just like, whoa, sin sin has permeated everything. Yes. And there's a promise from God to us that we get God. We get God. We get to spend an eternity with God. And so our big idea for today is this. Humble submission to God fights sin. Okay? And I want us to think about humility as like, oh, I'm just a weakling. Like, no, humility fights sin. Humility fights sin and looks forward to exaltation. It's not a command to you to say, stop it, stop it, stop being bad, stop being sinful. It's saying there's fuel for the battle. There's fuel for the battle. 
God walks with you. God encourages you. God challenges you. God reveals in you. And he says, and you get me. There's fuel for the walk of humility. So how do we apply this text to our lives? And I suppose there's probably a billion different ways to apply this text to our lives. But some things that I want us to consider as a church. And this is not an exhaustive list because there are billions of ways. But for us to think about, consider this. When was the last time you confessed your sin to God and others? There are far too many Christians who go far too long and there's like, I just haven't had anything to confess. Are you kidding me? I'm thankful that I think we made it another week without anyone murdering anyone. Praise the Lord. But we murder with our mouths. Like, I mean, just consider, consider the offensiveness of that. What you said about the school principal or that teacher or that coach or that ref. Think about that. They're an image bearer of Yahweh. That's sinful. Or your mother-in-law or your father-in-law or, I mean, just like, think about these things. Like, and we confess our sins, Father, I'm so sorry. That I said X, Y, and Z. But when, when was the last time you confessed your sin to God or, and then to others? Hold you accountable. When was the last time you mourned the treatment of people? Perhaps even your spouse. When was the last time you mourned what has flowed from your mouth freely? That song you listen to, it's trash. Literally, theologically, garbage. When was the last time we mourned over wrongness? Calling here is to confess your sin to God. Secondly, what do we need to do to cleanse our hands, right? Cleansing our hands is the means by which we sin. Do you need to buy a flip phone? That's a good option for your holiness. I would rather have you go to heaven with a flip phone than go to hell captured by pornography. I know it's inconvenient. But I think God can sustain you. Do you need to quit your job? Do you need to leave your job? Yes, I think God can sustain you as you look for another job. Yes, I think he can provide friends for you at the new place. He's faithful. Do you need to stop associating with that person? Now, I know people are like, whoa, but I'm trying to share the gospel with them. Like, no, nothing ever good goes with you and that person. So stop associating with them and trust that God will sovereignly bring someone else into their life that might lead them to Christ. But you shouldn't. You can't. You need to stop going to that store. Like, what do you need to do practically to help you not sin? Okay, so how then do we purify our hearts? Guys, we come to this all the time, and I could see some of you even... I haven't ever seen this, but I could see some of you like even rolling your eyes at this. Read the Bible. <laughs> read the Bible. You don't have to read the whole thing today or this year. You can start in the book of Colossians. And you can read one paragraph at a time. And you know, when you start something new, it's weird. It is weird and difficult. Just start. There's a letter that God has written to us it talks about the heinousness of sin and his glory and the hope that we can have in him. Start reading the Bible. Start praying. Start a relationship with God. 
We would never have relationships with our spouses if we didn't write letters or call each other or text. It just wouldn't happen. And how do we expect to have a relationship with God by showing up to church maybe once every seven days, most likely once every 14? How is that relational material? How does it build trust equity with such massive gaps? That's how we purify our hearts. We go to the Father and he ministers to our soul and it changes our actions. We need to do this. And folks, as we head into a time of communion here, we can do this. We can do this because of the work that Christ did. I hope and pray that as you go through the book of James, you realize like how sinfully wicked we are. And it doesn't just have to be murder. It doesn't just have to be adultery. It doesn't just have to be the, the top five. It can be the billions of things we do multiple times a day. And they're wicked. And they're offensive. To God, they're fitting of the word adultery. They're fitting of the word hatred of God. And nobody wants to hate God. Are you kidding me? But yet you do. We need a Savior. The greatest display of God giving more grace to us is in His Son, Jesus Christ. He graciously gave somebody who was perfect, who lived the life I can't live and died the death I can't die. And He rose again, which I cannot do. For me, for you. And so as we enter this time of communion, we want to come like with hearts that are clean, with hearts that say, God, forgive me for this word that I said. Father, forgive me for this time that I've wasted. Forgive me for how I have perceived or acted or said or done or whatever. God, forgive me. I accept the grace of Christ from the cross. I'm with Jesus. That's what we practice when we take communion. So friend, I would implore you, if you are not in a place where you can take communion, you should not take communion. Because God hates sin. If you need to go reconcile with somebody, you should do that prior to taking communion. But if you are able in this moment to confess your sin to God, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, then you come. And you celebrate what Jesus Christ did on the cross saving you from the consequences of your sin and giving you his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your word. God, with, which both warns us, God, and tells us that we get you. God, I can't imagine um, just the many ways that this message was taken, Lord, but I just pray that you would grow this church's view of who you are. God, grow our view of your hatred of sin, God, and, and humble our hearts. God, I know that there are people who will respond to this message in humility, and there are people who will respond to this message in pride. And God, for the boastful, I pray that you would dismantle their hearts of stone. That you would open their eyes and their ears to see the hope and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, to the humble, nourish them. Give them life and joy in you, in Jesus' name.